And Thomas asked the Lord, he said, how do we know where we're going? We don't know the way. And Jesus said what? I am the way and the truth and the life. We're starting a new series of uh, messages this morning. It's called The Master Calls. If you've ever wondered how we get direction and uh, set the course for the sermon plan at Gambrel Street, I hope it's because we're listening to the Lord collectively together, not just the pastor, but the, the whole congregation. You know, over the past few years, if you stop and think about it, <clears throat> we focused on first the life of Christ. We spent a little more than a year looking at the Gospel of Mark. And then we felt it was important that we re-understand, if that's a verb, who the church is called to be, you, looking at the New Testament church. And we spent about a year and a half in the book of Acts. And then, you know, we are a distinctively and purposefully, I think, designed kingdom church. We do believe in being great commissioned Christians, but we also are self-consciously Baptist. And so we spent about a half a year looking at those things that make us distinctive in our faith, our belief system. And then we listened to the parables of Jesus for about a half a year. These are fairly large blocks of uh, time that we've committed to looking at different themes in Scripture. And then COVID hit, and we used the lectionary for a couple of years. And just about every week, there was a reading in the lectionary that applied to something that we were facing during that two-year period. And then last year, we went back to look at apologetics, to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And we were going to do then another series in apologetics on cultural issues, but decided instead to spend some time in thinking about worship. And you might remember we spent about four months on that, and then we just finished the series on cultural apologetics. That's where we've been over the last four or five years. So what has led us to this series, The Master Calls? Well, uh, I haven't seen it all in about 40-something years of ministry. Clyde's seen a lot more of it than I have. But we collectively have seen a lot of things come and go. And here's the essence of it. We need to cancel out the white noise. We need to stay focused on what Jesus says. And what I mean by white noise, there are a lot of good things, and some not so good, that capture our imagination and cause us to focus on things that Jesus did not focus on. Let me tell you a little bit about the things that I've seen over the past 60 years or so. Uh, I became a Christ follower in 1957, so it's been over 60 years. One of those is apocalyptism. You might remember how Lindsay and the late great planet Earth sold 35 million copies, and the Left Behind series, which is quite an industry, 16 novels by 
Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins sold over 80 million copies. Certainly the Lord talks about end times. As a matter of fact, he spends a lot of time talking about the end times. But sometimes we can become too focused on the apocalypse. Another issue, I think, is what I would call theologism. I don't know if that's a word or not, but we become so focused on our theology, sometimes to an unhealthy degree. Frankly, folks, that's a lot of what the conservative resurgence and fundamentalistic biblicism is about and the focus on inerrancy. I believe the word is God's infallible word. I certainly do. But we need to be, in, we need to be careful that we don't make the Bible an idol. And you've heard me say that many times. And I'm not saying that conservative resurgence has done that. But some people take that idea and they take it to an extreme. Reformed theology. Calvin was not a Calvinist like the Reformed theologians are today. Sometimes we can become too focused on our theology, whether it is Calvinism or Arminianism or any other kind of ism, Pentecostalism. These things come in waves. When I was teaching at seminary, you could almost predict it. About every three or four years, there would be a resurgence of Calvinism in our seminaries. Kingdomism is another focus sometimes. What do I mean by that? Planting churches is a good thing. But the church growth movements focus only on evangelism and only on planting churches can become unhealthy when we forget about discipleship beyond that. The emergent church, kingdomism, a movement today of ecumenical, non-denominational, postmodern, liturgical progressives that want to be all things to all people, but not in a way that Paul told us we should be. There's devotionalism. We've seen that come and go. There's nothing wrong with T.W. Hunt's Mind of Christ. It's, I think, a great work. And, and Henry Blackaby's Experiencing God. But sometimes we can become so deeper life that we don't get our eyes up out of the trenches. Tropism. We can make the Bible into a trope. It's a kind of simplism. You remember WWJD? It took our youth by storm. What would Jesus do? It came and it went. The Prayer of Jabez by Wilkinson. Code books, people going to the Bible and extracting things and then making an industry out of these codes. And certainly the Da Vinci Code is not biblical. Materialism, uh, need I say more in, in two words, prosperity gospel. Folks, it's not the gospel. Commercialism, religious publishing, it's a good thing. I'm glad that I can go to Christian bookstores and look online and find Christian books. There's nothing wrong with that. Religious publishing is an industry that is worth over a billion dollars a year since 2020. The film industry, the top 10 21, uh, 21st century films, Christian films, have netted $1.3 billion in ticket sales. I love C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that industry has produced over a billion dollars of income. We have to be careful about our commercialism. Managementism, is that a word? Well, if it's not, I think it describes one of the problems that we have in our church. When our church is run like a business and we're more worried about quality control following W.E. Deming or management by objective following Peter Drucker. Servant leadership is a good thing. 
I think Robert Greenleaf was on to something. But sometimes it becomes the be-all and the end-all. The purpose-driven church, the purpose-driven life. Rick Warren, I value what he's written. But sometimes we can become too focused on our hobby horses. There's doxologism. Well, what is that? In two words, the worship wars have consumed many of our churches and split them. And then finally, there's accommodationism. Non-denominationalism today is rampant. I will say it again. We are a kingdom church. We are Great Commission Christians, but we are consciously Baptist. We will not take that name off of the church in the near future if I have anything to do with it. Non-denominationalism can become a hobby horse in its own right. We have become, as I said last week, some of our churches have become too seeker-friendly And, of course, the threat of wokeism today in our church. You see, all of these things, some of them are good, some of them not so good. They can distract us and take our eyes off of what Jesus wanted us to focus on. And it wasn't any different in the first century. You know, you had the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, who emphasized their Greco-Roman philosophic background. You had the Herodians then that wanted to support Rome. You had the Jews, the Jews that spoke Aramaic and focused on their Jewish traditions and resisted Hellenism. You had the zealots then that were even more adamant about that. And you had radical nationalists that were all about independence, took the focus off the word of God. There was theological division between the Sadducees who focused on the temple and the Torah only and liturgy and the the Pharisees on the other side with a focus on the rabbinical code and synagogue teaching and legalism. The Essenes who focused on a coming teacher of righteousness and ascetically withdrew into the desert, into their monastic communities. And the Samaritans, on the other hand, who said that we are to worship at that temple that no longer exists on the top of Mount Gerizim and focused on their ethnic community. And there was always the problem of apocalyptism. Oh, we've come full circle. (laughs) It wasn't Hal Lindsey back then, but there were those that emphasized the return of Elijah. You see, Jesus dealt with the same issues in his day as we do, as we listen to his words. There was a lot of white noise. Many of those that were consumed by it had good intentions. Some were misguided and some became heretics. We must stay focused on the unvarnished essentials that Jesus Christ spoke. And that's why we're looking at Matthew 17 today, because it provides us clear guidance, I think, in that direction. When the Father says, this is my beloved Son, my chosen one, listen to Him. You know, the background for this story is near Caesarea Philippi. It's 25 miles north of Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum. It's near the border between Syria and Lebanon, and, and, and behind it is Mount Hermon. This area was filled with pagan temples and the worship of Pan, And Mount Hermon stood 9,000 feet above sea level. The dominating terrain feature is the background probably of the story today. What's happened up to this point? In Matthew 16, they are headed toward uh, Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus has said a very interesting thing to them after they had forgotten to bring bread with them in the boat. 
He's fed the 5,000, then he's fed the 4,000. And after the feeding the 4,000, it always intrigues me then that the disciples the very next day, apparently, they don't have any bread except one loaf. Isn't that amazing? They picked up seven basketfuls. And then Jesus says something very interesting to them. He says, beware of the what? Leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, what is he saying there? I think he's saying, watch out for the white noise. Watch out for those things that will distract you from what the kingdom purpose is and my words. Beware of the leaven out there. And there's a lot of leaven out there today, folks. And as they're walking along, he then asks them before they get to Caesarea Philippi, he says, who do people say that I am? And how do they respond? They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and some say that maybe you're Elijah, you see, who is to come. Or some say maybe Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus then looks at him and he said, but who do you say that I am? And you know who spoke up? Impetuous. He blurted it out. Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And what did Jesus do? He affirmed that. The confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi against the backdrop then of Mount Hermon. And then what did Jesus say? His words were very clear. He told them, I'm going to inaugurate the kingdom, and the kingdom is going to be then established through the church, and the foundation can can, withstand the assault by the gates of hell. And that which is earthly is going to have eternal consequences. You as my followers who are going to become the church, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you free on earth, loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, you're responsible for this gospel I've given you. And if you share it, you free people. If you don't, you bind them. And then he predicted that he was going to go to Jerusalem and he was going to suffer. He was going to die and he was going to be resurrected. And Peter didn't like that. You see, in shocking disbelief, Peter then rebukes him. Can you imagine rebuking Jesus? And Jesus rebuked Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. And then after he's told them that he's going to die in Jerusalem and be resurrected, he then calls them to be his disciples. If anyone will come after me, let that person do what? Deny himself, deny herself, take up your cross daily and follow me. And either you hold on to this life in this earth and you don't have a future life or you let go of this life on earth and I will give you eternal life. And as a token then of this, a token of that promise, let me tell you what you're going to see. There's going to be a sign that you're going to see that's going to validate everything that we have said on the road to Caesarea Philippi, on the confession of me as the Son of the living God, on the establishment of the church, on my crucifixion and my resurrection, and my call of you as disciples. The token of this is that truly I say to you that there's some who are standing here today who are not going to see death until they see the Son of Man coming in His glory. And that event happened six days later. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word from Matthew 17? Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. 
And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And while he was was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up. Do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Let's be seated. And may God bless the reading of his word. You know, when we look at the Mark and and the Lucan accounts, there are some other things that are added to this. Mark tells us why Peter spoke. (laughs) He said that they were so terrified that he blurts this out. Luke adds to this, this the dimension of shock. He said Peter didn't even realize what he was saying. Luke adds about seven other facts to the story. First, he says it was eight days instead of six days, but that's not a conflict. It's simply the Jewish way of saying about a week later. The occasion, Peter, uh, Luke tells us, is that Jesus went up to the mountain to do what? He went up to pray as he often did. And Luke also tells us that what Moses and Elijah were discussing with Jesus. They were talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And many scholars think about this when they talk about his departure, they're talking about his death. No, that's not what he's talking about. His departure was when he then, after he was resurrected, would depart this earth and he would go home to be with his father. Luke also tells us that the disciples had been asleep. Does that sound familiar? That's going to happen again in the garden when he says that they need to stay up and keep watch. They had fallen asleep, but now they're awakened by these two men that are talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And they're wide awake during the transfiguration. Then the bright cloud, Luke tells us, then overshadows them. And then what happens? He tells us that Moses and Elijah then depart and enter through the clouds so that when the Father speaks, they are no longer there. And Luke specifically tells us that the disciples witnesses Jesus' glory. Now that's important. It's implied here in the Matthew account, but it's explicit in the Luke account. Why is that important? Because then later John is going to give this testimony. He is going to say, we beheld his glory, even the glory of the only begotten of the Father who was full of grace and truth. Peter later testified in his first letter. We were witnesses of his majesty. And as a result, then we had the prophetic word made even more sure to us. Luke also gives a slightly different description from the father. Matthew says, this is my son, my beloved son, the one I love. Listen to him. Luke adds in there, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, what's the significance of all of this? A couple of things. First, This is my son, my chosen one. And then secondly, listen to him. The first significant point, this is my beloved son and my chosen one, confirmed something, identified something, and validated something. It confirmed this. It confirmed that Jesus is the son of God. Peter's confession had been accurate. This is the second time the father said it. We know the first time was at the baptism. This is my son whom I love. And he said that. Jesus. I am very pleased with you. And now he says this to the disciples. The disciples hear this. 
And when he talks to the disciples, this is my beloved son, and he tells them to do what? He says, listen to him. It identified something, the son of God, the chosen one, that he was uniquely divine and superior. There's an emphasis in this passage on this. This is my son. This is my son, not those that have departed into the cloud, not Moses, not Elijah. You see, they've already disappeared. Only Jesus remained. You see, Jesus was not just another Moses, and that's important because many were expecting one to come like Moses and to fulfill the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18 that came from Moses' mouth. What did he say? You know, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from among you, from among your countrymen. And, and then he says this, and you shall listen to him. Hmm. But you see, this isn't just Moses. Jesus was greater than Moses. John tells us this in his prologue. Moses gave the law. Jesus came full of grace and truth. The author of Hebrews, two chapters after what John Ed read this morning, says that Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And John's gospel, when Jesus is talking about the feeding of the 5,000, he reminds us that Israel ate the manna that was through Moses from God, and they died in the wilderness. But you see, what I give you is bread that will last forever. I give you living bread for eternal life. You see, he was greater than Moses. Jesus was not just another Elijah. Malachi's prophecy had been fulfilled. Malachi had prophesied near the end of the book. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet, hence apocalyptism. I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. But Jesus was not Elijah. You see, Jesus had already said, you know who Elijah is. In Matthew 11th chapter, he very clearly identifies that the new Elijah is who? It's John the Baptist. And then after they descend from the Mount of Transfiguration, the question about Elijah comes up again. Has he really come? And Jesus, yes, he has come. And he's referring to John the Baptist, not himself. No, Jesus was not just Elijah. He was superior to Elijah, according to John's own testimony. In Matthew, the third chapter, he says what? John the Baptist says, there's one who is coming after me who is greater than I am. I am not even worthy to do what? I'm not even worthy to loose and take off his sandals. John's own testimony, John the Baptist. In the first chapter, John recognized and testified that Jesus is the Son of God. And two chapters later, he said what? He must do what? And I must do what? He must increase and I must decrease. Jesus was not just another Moses. Jesus was not just another Elijah. He was superior to both. You see, he was the chosen one. This validates his messianic mission from the, from the mouth of the Father himself. Luke's description, this is my son, my son, my chosen one, was a fulfillment of the prophecy that comes out of Isaiah, the 42nd chapter. Behold, my servant, whom I, behold, whom I uphold, he is my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He is the chosen one, the one whom, through, through whom God chooses us. I think sometimes people misunderstand predestination in the book of Ephesians. 
You see, he is the chosen one through whom we are chosen. That's predestination, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. Just as he chose us, you see, because he was the chosen one before the foundation of the world. He has predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. You see, we're chosen through the chosen one. There's a second significance, I think, to what the Father says here, and that is listen to him. And it's going to be the focus of this series for the next few months. I think what the Father is saying is this. Focus on his words. Not the words of Moses, although they're important. Focus on his words. Not not the words of Elijah, though they're important. Focus on his words. You see, the, the, the pronoun there comes at the beginning of the phrase. It's emphatic. Focus on his words. Even more than that of Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law, and the law is good. It is not superseded. It has not been done away with. Jesus came to fulfill it. Elijah represents the prophets, and the prophets are important. But Jesus is greater than both of these. Jesus is greater than the law and the prophets. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, was there at the foundation of the world. And the word that we received, the word that we heard read this morning from Hebrews that gives testimony of Jesus Christ, was authored by himself with the Father through the influence of the Holy Spirit. You see, he gave the word, and he is the word. And then Jesus fulfilled the word. He is greater than the law and the prophets. Focus on his words and how he tells us then to interpret the law and the prophets. Over the next few months, as we listen to his words, we need to focus on his words and not the white noise around us. Listen to everything, I think, secondly, the Father's saying. Listen to everything that he has said because it is absolutely true. He is inaugurating the kingdom, and his his church will withstand the assault by the gates of hell. He will suffer, and he will die, and he will be resurrected, as you have heard him say. And you must choose. When he gives you the offer to follow him, to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him, you have a choice to make. This morning, we have a choice to make. Do we follow him, or do we not? Listen to everything he says, because it is true. Listen to his words. Listen to everything he says. Thirdly, listen intently. Not just hearing, but listen. Willing to learn and understand. Jesus differentiated between hearers, you know. He said his true disciples are open. They're willing to understand the kingdom principles. That's why I spoke in parables. There are those who hear and you're part of the kingdom and you understand the mysteries of the kingdom because you're willing to listen and understand me. But there are those that are not willing to hear. They're skeptics and they will, they're close-minded. And he said, and they will not understand. And Jesus encouraged them. If anyone has ears to hear, let him what? Hear. What he was saying is if you have ears to hear, listen. Don't just hear. Listen with a willingness to understand. And then fourthly, the Father was saying, listen so that you will obey. Don't just listen. Do what he says. Another verb that you could put in there is obey him. You see, this idea is embedded in the Old Testament promise and the expectation of the coming of the Messiah. In Deuteronomy 18, when when Moses says, there's going to be a prophet that comes like me, what did he go on to say? He said, that prophet will come to you out out of your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And what he was saying then was you must obey him. 
Because the verb there, shema, means to heed, not just to hear, but to heed and to listen, to obey. You see, these words that the Father was speaking was spoken to disciples. They had made a commitment to do what? To become like their master, as we said last week, and to obey what the master said. And he's saying, do it, listen. And Jesus differentiated between those that were false followers and true followers, and the key was that they not only heard, but they listened with a willingness to obey. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, what does he say? Whoever hears these words that I have spoken, and what? And obeys them, those people will be like the what? The wise man. The wise man that built his house upon the rock. But those who hear my words, and there are many who hear my words, but do not obey them, are like the what? The foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the wind and the rain and the storm came and beat against it and the house collapsed because it was not built on the rock of obedience to my words. Jesus exhorted them then, but that they were to not just listen, but to obey, just as his brother James said in his epistle, prove yourselves to be what? Doers of the word and not just hearers only. And then finally, I think the father is saying, listen urgently. Listen to my son with a sense of urgency and immediacy about the words that he has spoken. Jesus himself, when he goes and proclaims the gospel, the first words out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel of Matthew after the temptation, and he's in going into Galilee, and he preaches the gospel, is he says what? Repent, for the kingdom of God is what? It's at hand. It's coming. It's here. It's upon us. Repent now. Listen with a sense of urgency. Harvest time is near, he tells his disciples, near Sychar as he's standing there at the well, at, at Jacob's well. He says, you know, you say there's four more months to the harvest. He said, no, <laughs> no, the harvest isn't coming in four months. Behold, I say to you, look at the fields, look out there, look at them coming from Sychar. The harvest is here. The harvest is white. The time of decision is now. You see, the time for our completing the mission that he has given to us, friends, is close. We need to listen with a sense of urgency over the next few months to his words. We must work the works of him who has sent us, Jesus said, as long as it's daytime. But let me tell you, Jesus said, the night's coming. The night's coming, and when it gets here, there will no no longer be any time for work. You know... In the Army, when the first thing that I did as a cadet in ROTC, as a freshman, back in 1968 at Auburn University, they put me in a uniform, and then they put me out on a drill field. That's the first thing that soldiers learn to do. They, they learn to do what? To walk. And not talk. There's only one that talks, and he is the platoon sergeant that gives the orders, or the squad leader. And you do drill and ceremonies. Now, why do you do drills and ceremonies? But this goes way back to ancient military history, you know, when they would form in formations, you know, and meet each other in set formations and all of that. And you had to listen to your commander when you're to draw your weapon and to shoot and that sort of thing. But this is carried over to today because it is an excellent drill in what? Discipline and good order. Now, what's interesting about drill and ceremonies is this. Every time a command is given, there is one more step that is taken. Right shoulder. You don't do right shoulder then until he says arms. And on that second beat, then you put the rifle up on your right shoulder. Squad, you're marching along. 
And that's a warning that you're going to have to stop. Squat, next step, halt. Then you halt. Every one of those commands, there's another step. You see, there is time. You can prepare your mind. You have another step to take. But there is one command in the army. I don't know about the Air Force and the rest of it. There's one command that you don't have another step to take. And that's when they yell, gas. And when they yell, gas, you do what? You hit the ground immediately. You don't take another step. Folks, that is the way we should listen to the Word of God. We don't take another step. We listen with a sense of urgency and immediacy, and we respond. So let me close with this. Why should we listen to Jesus' words? Well, first of all, because he speaks the very words of God. John 17 puts it this way when he's talking to the Father. He says, for the words, Father, that you gave me, I have given them. The words that he speaks over the next few months are the words that come from the Father through him to us. They're literally the words of God. Secondly, his words speak the real truth. What is actual truth? If you continue in my word, he said, if you continue in my word, you will know the what? The truth, the truth, the absolute truth, the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And it will make you what? It'll make you free. Thirdly, his words bring true joy. These words I have spoken to you, after he talks about the vine, he says, these words I have spoken to you for this purpose so that my joy may be in you and that joy will be abundant. It will be complete. We listen to his words because they come directly from the Father. We listen to his words because they are real truth. We listen to his words because they bring true joy. And folks, we listen to his words because they cut through the white noise. They cut through all the popular motifs and agendas. They cut across all human agendas and theologies. You see, his word cuts and it cleans. You know, some people have a problem with the beginning of uh, John, the 15th chapter, because it talks about the vine, and it talks about the vine dressed in the Father, and Jesus says, I'm the vine. And he said, you know, that which is part of the vine that does not produce fruit, I cut off. And and, and we get real worried about that. You know, is this this about once saved, always saved, or, or no, I can be unsaved, and I can be cut off? Folks, I don't think that's the point there. I think what Jesus is talking about there is white noise. You see, there's a lot of stuff on the vine that is unfruitful. It doesn't bear fruit. It's unnecessary. It it takes us away from His Word. It takes us away from being vitally connected to the vine. Whatever it is, whatever theological agenda it is, whatever social agenda it is, if it's wokeism or whatever it is, folks, if it takes us away from focusing on the Word of God, it needs to be cut away. It needs to be cleaned. It needs to be pruned. And you see, the Word of God does that. Because he says this, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it will bear much more fruit. You see, you're already clean. You're already clean out there if you have done what? If you have listened to the word that he has spoken. Because he says, you're already clean because the word which I have spoken to you, you see it has a cleansing power. If we listen to the word of God, it cuts away the white noise. It cleanses us and it helps us to stay focused on the will of God. There's a last reason. Why we should listen to the Word of God. And it's obvious. It brings eternal life. Peter gives testimony. Lord, (laughs) Jesus looks around and he sees the disciples departing after he's fed the 5,000. And they're they're going away because his, 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 his words are too hard for them. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. 
oh, that's, that's too difficult. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, are you going to depart too? And Peter, once again, impetuous Peter, what does he say? Lord, where can we go? You, you, Lord, have the words of life, eternal life. John's testimony at the end of his gospel, what does he say? You see, these things that he did, these things that he said that I I have written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing him, you might have life in his name. If you don't believe the testimony of Peter and John, listen to Jesus' own words. Listen to him this morning. He who hears my word, he said in John 5, he who hears my word and believes in me and believes in the one who sent me has eternal life. Listen to his words. Not just over the next few months. Listen to his words this morning. Is he speaking to you in some way? Is he calling you to make a decision for him in one way or another today? Yes, he is for every one of us. As we leave here, we need to listen to his word as it guides us in the byways and the pathways of life. Maybe he's been speaking to you for a long time. Maybe he's drawing you closer to him today. Maybe you're listening online and he's been speaking that still small voice of the spirit of God in your heart It's not just your conscience. It's the Lord speaking and beckoning to you, and he's saying, come to me, follow me. You may have resisted in many days past, but today, he says, I have the word of life. And if you would follow me, give yourself up. Turn your life over to me. Make me the master and the Lord of your life, and take up the cross that I give you daily. And follow me. Listen to my words. You know, I don't know a lot of things. I don't know a lot of things. I don't know why God's wondrous grace to me has made known. I don't know why I have the faith to believe that God gave me. I don't know how the Spirit moves, convincing me of sin. I don't know. And nobody does when the Lord may come, and he will. But I do know this. I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. His word is true and faithful, and the promise is given to you today. If you trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have eternal life. And you can be sure of that. That's one thing you may know. Let's pray. Father, today, help us to listen to your word and to respond to it wherever we may be. The word that you've given through your son, Jesus Christ, which is the word of eternal life. My prayer this morning is that there is someone who will respond by turning over their life to your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.